Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 1 to verse 11. And it came about that when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John in prison heard of the words of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. And as these were going away, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes. And I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is at least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We have seen in chapter 10 that Jesus has sent out the twelve to preach about the kingdom of God, uh, that it was at hand. To go into the villages and the cities of Israel, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus had empowered them to do miracles in his name. Those who received their, their word would be blessed. Those who refused to heed their word would be cursed, Jesus said. We saw at the end of chapter 10 that Jesus said that his preachers, he called his preachers his little ones. But his little ones are full of divine authority. And that's why he says those who listen to them receive me and those who don't receive them don't receive me. Jesus says all those people who give a cup of water even to these little ones is preachers. They share in the prophet's reward. And then what we're told here, following these instructions about the twelve and sending them out, we are told here that Jesus, uh, we, we learn about John the Baptist. We learn that uh, he is now imprisoned. And as a prisoner, he's going to send word to Jesus. Now, <clears throat> with reference to John the Baptist, we have to ask this. As we read here, you'll see Jesus gives a tribute unlike most anything you could imagine concerning John the Baptist. What made John the Baptist so great? Now, we've got to keep some things in perspective here. First, John the Baptist is a man just like any man. He's a mere man who was a sinner like all the rest of us, that we all are sinners. All are in need of God's grace and mercy. John's no different. Jesus, we're told, preaches through his preachers. Uh, and when they faithfully preach the word, we saw that uh, in our text in Matthew uh, 10. We're going to see it later in Matthew 11. He preaches through his preachers. Romans, that I read to you last week, indicates that Jesus preaches through his preachers when they are faithful to his word. So Jesus, we're told, after he gave all these instructions uh, to his disciples, and he sends them out to the villages and the cities, Jesus himself 
Now we'll go into the villages in the cities, independent of his disciples. And he's going to be doing miracles in these cities. And so in this sense, we see that Jesus, what did he do when he went out to the cities and the villages? It says he, he was teaching and preaching. Now, in this regard, we ought to address this thing. What, what, is, what does it mean to teach and to preach? Obviously, there's some kind of difference between the two, because they are two different words. And it says uh, not all teachers are preachers, not all preachers teachers uh, per se. Here's what we can discern. If you, if you were to take a look at teaching and preaching, here are the differences. Preaching is a heralding. It is an announcing. It is a proclamation of truth. One of the things about, about preaching is that it calls its audience to action, to heed what is being said. There's a lot of exhortation. There's rebuke uh, in uh, heralding the gospel, in preaching. But what about teaching? Jesus says he was a preacher, but he also taught. He preached in the cities and he taught. Well, what is teaching? Teaching is a more detailed explanation of biblical truth. So, when we think about pastors and their roles, really are engaged in, in many respects, in both preaching and teaching. We teach what the Word of God says. Uh, we exegete, meaning we bring out, all that word means is that we bring out of the text, or we should bring out of the text, what the text really means. God inspired His Word uh, with verbally. Words mean something. They're not to be uh, just taken for granted or sloughed off. Words mean something. You know, the problem today that we see in our churches in, 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 many, in many respects is that there is a distancing from appreciating the authority of the Word of God and that the Word of God came to us verbally. Words mean something. I mean, when God revealed Himself through the prophets, He revealed uh, verbally to them. They, they wrote what He wanted to have written. And we should not take great liberty with that revelation of God. Some people take uh, that liberty. For example, on the days of creation, some, oh, does a day mean a day or not? So you look at the scriptures and you do your study and you realize, yeah, the day means a day. A 24-hour period. But there are some that says, no, it really doesn't mean a day. It means millions of years. Really? I would not have known that from the text. You see, once we begin to have that kind of liberty with the Word of God, then you can make it say whatever you want to say. So the role of teaching is that of being faithful to a text of how God revealed uh, His Word to man. So, one of the things that both Christ and His apostles did that John the Baptist never did. Now think, well, what is it that, that Jesus and the apostles did that John never did? You know, we've already talked a lot about John the Baptist. John the Baptist never performed one miracle. That wasn't his ministry. But we see Jesus and his apostles do they do great many miracles, but not John the Baptist. And so, we see here that Jesus is going out and he's performing uh, these miracles. He's teaching. He's laying out biblical truth. He's announcing that the kingdom of God has arrived, that people need to, to hear that. Now, we're told in our text in verses 2 and 3, that John, while in prison, heard about the works of God, of Christ that is, and he sent word by his disciples. Now, to go to Jesus. Now, Matthew doesn't mention who they were, but Luke mentions that he sent two of his disciples. 
So when he had this inquiry, he sends, sends two of his disciples. Remember, John had his disciples. There were followers of John the Baptist. And there were times, as we're going to see, that his followers were wondering about this Jesus and what he was doing. They were faithful to John the Baptist. And John is going to seek to convey to his disciples, there is someone greater than me that you need to follow. Now, verse 2 and 3 have caused... No minor stir among many in trying to understand what is going on here. In fact, you can read various commentators. It doesn't help when you have commentators split. That doesn't help matters, does it? I mean, we want to know what the Word of God says, right? Now, here's where here's the difficulty. Is, is John the Baptist, when he sends word, when he hears about the works of Christ... And he said to them, ask Jesus this, are you the expected one? In other words, are you the Messiah or we expect another? And you wonder, is John the Baptist doubting? I mean, it's, no, it's not a good situation that John's in. We're told by Josephus in his Antiquity of the Jews that the palace of Herod was in a desert region and it's called Nahiris. And that is where John, in a desert prison, is at. So is, is John doubting, and he needs to have reassurance from Jesus? Some have said, yeah, there's some of that with John. Now you can see um, the fact that John the Baptist is a mere man. He's not above discouragement. He's not above uh some doubts. It's not that he could have doubted, but the question is, is he really doubting here? Then you have others who say, um, no, it's not really that he's doubting, that he's more concerned about helping his disciples understand who Jesus is because he's not going to be around much longer and he needs to have his disciples assured of who Jesus is. So, which is it? Is John doubting? Or is he uh, using this as a method to help his disciples? Now, it's not that we just flip a coin and say, oh, I'll take, take this and that one. No, they, this is the challenge uh, that anybody who is engaged in um, teaching the Word of God to say, all right, it has to mean something. What is it? really saying what is going on here so that in understanding what's going on we can appreciate it and uh, derive uh, how we should live in light of it what application there could be from it so what was behind John's inquiry of Jesus well we need to understand as I've already indicated John had his own disciples now, there is something about John when he sends, uh, if you notice in John the Baptist's ministry, there were those who came along and wanted to be baptized by him, namely the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And remember John the Baptist says, who's told you to flee the wrath to come? And then he, he says some very hard things to them because he knows their heart. And he says, God is ready to lay the axe to the tree concerning you. And it says, uh, I baptize in water, but there is one who's coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And it says that, that God is a wintering fork. He's got the chaff. And, and one of the things that they did, they would take a, a grain, and you would, if you wanted to separate the chaff from the grain, you would take your fork and you just throw it up. And the chaff, which is lighter, would just be blown and the grain would fall down. He says, when this Messiah comes, when he baptizes people, there's going to be two people, kinds of people. Those who will be baptized with the Spirit, who are going to be regenerated, and there are going to be some who will be baptized with fire. In other words, that are going to experience 
the judgment of God for their rebellion and not having believed Jesus. So now, what we see here is we're told in verse 2 that John, when, when John was in prison, he heard of the works of Christ. Now, just think about that a minute. How did John hear about what was going on with Jesus? He's in prison. He wasn't given 24-hour leave to go out and watch Jesus. So how did he know? Well, one thing that Josephus brings out, in those prisons, people could come and go. People could visit. Well, who was visiting uh, John the Baptist but his disciples? And his disciples were out seeing what was happening, what Jesus was doing. They were the ones coming back to John the Baptist telling him what was going on. So John, in hearing about these works, one thing here is there could have been one element of uh, inquisitiveness about him that uh, where in all that was Jesus was doing, where was this judgment of the Messiah against the uh, against these men, the Pharisees and the Sadducees? It seemed like it was all this ministry of uh, healing the lepers, the blind, the deaf, and all of this. But even then, here's what the evidence points to. The evidence points to the fact John was not questioning the Messiahship of Jesus. And and to, to demonstrate this to you, I want us to take a look at several passages to settle the question as to what was going on with John the Baptist. First of all, we're told, we'll turn to John 1 for a moment. John 1, verses 19 to 34. This is what it says. And this is the witness of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, and he confessed... I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he said, No. They said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now when they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him to him, Why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me. The thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who is a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him. But in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. And I did not recognize him, but it was he who sent me to baptize in water, said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, what did John know? There is no question, I trust, from this passage that John the Baptist understood Jesus to be the Messiah. He he clearly said, I'm not not that great one, but there's one I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He sees Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. He understands him to be the Redeemer of men. When he, he was told that when, uh, by the Father, Whoever you see the Spirit descend upon, this is the Son of God. Well, where did the, the dove descend? On the head of, of Jesus. 
So it was quite clear John understood his role. He understood understood uh, about his ministry. He understood exactly who Jesus was. Uh, <clears throat> turn with me to John chapter 3 and look at verses 24 through 36. Now this is after the the baptism that uh, when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. Here's uh, John's last testimony about who Jesus is, beginning in verse 24. And John also was baptizing, well, no, verse 24. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. There arose, therefore, a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have borne witness, behold, he's baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard he, that he bears witness, and no man receives his witness. He who has received his witness has sent his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the word of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son, has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. What do we see? John the Baptist's disciples were concerned that the crowds were now following Jesus and not him. What's going on here, John the Baptist? And John has to reassure, has to tell his disciples, look, I was never the Christ. I told you I wasn't the Christ. I'm the one who prepared the way. He must increase I must decrease. He has the words of eternal life. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You need to follow Him. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. So the evidence that John knew clearly that Jesus was the Messiah is quite substantial. Now, with his imprisonment, shake him up so bad so that he would be completely doubting that he need reassurance. I don't think the evidence points to that direction. Um, let's take a look at Luke's account for a second. Turn to Luke 7. Look at verse, beginning at verse 11. Luke 7, beginning at verse 11. And it came about soon afterwards that he went into a city, talking about Jesus, called Nain. And his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large multitude. Now as he approached the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her, and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. That must have been some episode. (laughs) And fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report concerning him went out all over Judea and in the surrounding district. And the disciples of John 
reported to him about these things. Now that's when the disciples went and told John the Baptist. And summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one? Do we look for someone else? And when the young man had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? The whole of the testimony is that John was not questioning whether Jesus was the Messiah. John was fearless. He was resolute in his actions. He, would, uh, he was hearing all these wonderful things by Jesus. And remember, John kept telling his disciples, I have to decrease. Jesus must increase. You need to turn from me to Jesus. What greater way for John to get that point across than to send two of his disciples, and Luke's account says these men arrived at the very hour Jesus was doing some incredible miracles. They arrived at that precise time. And they see, John's disciples see all that Jesus is doing. So, Jesus' reply to John's disciples to take John was an encouragement to John that the Messiah had indeed come. That indeed his ministry was exactly what it was meant to be, to prepare the way for the Messiah. Here's a man, he probably... We don't know exactly what was going on in John's mind. Was he in that prison? Uh, he was saying, you know, uh, he got himself there by being fearless in what he said to the king. Uh, he might have thought it might not go well for me. I don't know if he thought that it would, uh, he would end up losing his head. We're not sure. But he probably thought it wasn't a good thing that I got arrested for what I said to the king. Nonetheless... What a reassurance to John the Baptist to have his disciples come back. He says, let, me, let us tell you, John, what's happening. The blind see. The lame walk. The deaf hear. There are people rising from the dead, John. The poor have the gospel preached to them. John is not ignorant of the Old Testament scriptures. You know, you look at how Jesus responds to John's question. You know, Jesus did not say yes. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, all right, the answer to John's question is, yes, I'm the Messiah. How does Jesus answer John's question? Beautifully, doesn't he? Well, John, let's see. I'm going to tell you all that I'm doing. Let's see if you can figure it out, John. Yeah, I know you know. And he says, he says that to reassure John, yes, I am he. But what was John's desire? He wanted his disciples to see and hear Jesus say it. I must decrease. He must increase. But you know, what's interesting, uh, if you turn back to our passage in Matthew uh, 11, Jesus' uh, response to John's inquiry there in verses uh, 4 and 5, Jesus actually is quoting Scripture at this point. So we need to take a look at the scripture that Jesus is actually referring to when he sends he answers John's inquiry. First of all, Jesus quotes part of Isaiah chapter 35 verses 5 and 6. So turn over to Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. For waters will break forth 
in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. So Jesus is quoting Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. John, what's, you, you ask me, am I the Messiah? Here's what Isaiah said. I'm just telling you what Isaiah said. Turn over to Isaiah 61, because Jesus quotes part of Isaiah 61 to answer John's question. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. You know, Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would come bringing miracles with his preaching. That's what Isaiah said. And Jesus was... What's interesting here is, nowhere did Isaiah ever mention in the text about the dead being raised. Jesus, in other words... He actually adds there to it something. He says, you know what? It's even better than what Isaiah said. Because I'm raising the dead. And so, while it is exactly true. Now, you know, when we look at this, this uh, text, what Jesus says. It is true that physical lepers were healed of their loathsome uh, disease. Remember when we were talking about leprosy, how terrible leprosy was? That you could smell a leper from a distance. That's why they didn't get close to people. It was a foul stench. Uh, parts of their body would rot and fall off. It was a horrendous disease. Yeah, it's true that Jesus healed physical lepers. It's true that the deaf were actually healed of their hearing problem, and they could hear Jesus speak to them. They could hear the words of Jesus to them. Yes, that's happened. Yes, it's true that the physically dead rose really and truly from the dead. It is true that the poor had the gospel preached to them. But you see, the glory of Jesus is not what all these physical things that were being done. The glory of Jesus, as the apostles bore testimony, was that the miracles of Jesus were done what? To create awe, amazement among people. For what purpose? So that they could hear the gospel preached. They would understand why he had come. The people, in other words, those who had spiritual ears. Now, how many times does Jesus say, he who has ears to hear? Let them hear. Those who were deaf physically, he says, no, what's, what's more important is that you hear spiritually. What's even more important than getting your physical eyesight back so that you can actually see the gospel of who the Messiah really is and embrace him? That's greater than receiving your physical sight. And as amazing as it is that someone would physically rise from the dead, what did Isaiah say the Messiah would come to do? To proclaim liberty to the captives. What captives? Those who were captive to their sin. As Isaiah later says, um, we are all lost. We are all doomed. We are all our righteousnesses or as filthy rags. None of us can arouse ourselves to take hold of thee. No, a dead person can't do anything. But if Jesus sets you free, as Jesus says later, he says if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. Free from the bondage to your iniquity. That's what he came to do. He says, John, he says, your question is, am I the Messiah? Absolutely, you know that I am. And my ministry is such that on the dawn of of humanity has come the Messiah. You've got to understand something. Isaiah's prophecy was seven centuries before. 700 years gone by. And we complain that God doesn't do things next month for us, according to his promises. How long do people have to wait for the Messiah, for the Baptist to come? 700 years. But he came, did he not? You know, 
Notice what Jesus said. Now, Jesus responds to John the Baptist's inquiry to reassure John, and John sent him for a reason to have his disciples hear this. But all of this is for a purpose, and it's verse 6, and this is what's so important. Jesus says, Blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Now, I've done all these marvelous things. Are you going to get the point or not? Are you going to get the point that I am the Messiah and you need to believe in me and trust your life with me? Because that's what it's all about. It's not just about healing people of their infirmities. It's about being spiritually healed. It's about turning to Jesus. Are you going to do it? You going to believe me, or am I going to be a stumbling block? We're going to see he was a stumbling block to those, some of those who heard him. But seeing all of these wonderful things, and yet some did not embrace Jesus as the Messiah, who would come, who was coming to heal them of their spiritual poverty. Now let me ask you a very important question, brethren. How does the reading and the accounting of these things I just shared with you, how does that affect you? Well, are, are you moved in your heart to love Jesus? Are you? When you read about this, is, is that the impact that it has upon you? This is the Jesus you heard the gospel and believed. This is this Jesus. This is the Jesus you saw with spiritual eyes. And you, you were equipped and enabled to see the gospel. This is this Jesus. This is the Jesus that raised your deadened soul from its bondage to sin. This is this Jesus. So when you hear about this, does it, does it drive you to love Him more? This is the Jesus that proclaimed liberty to your soul and redeemed you and paid a great price. I used to watch these movies. I said, it's past tense. I used to watch these movies about Jesus. Some of them, three of them, some of my favorite. The oldest one was the greatest story ever told. Then there was King of Kings, and then the latest was Jesus of Nazareth. Let me tell you something. Every time I watch, you know why I like watching those? I never could watch them without crying. Because it was like I was there. This is my Jesus. This is my Savior. This is He who's done these marvelous things. He's real. He's real. He's done that for me. Then I realized, you know what? It had its downside to it. Because Hollywood always likes to embellish things. And, and as a preacher, I, there was one time I, I, I found teaching and I, I fell back to remembering a scene in one of the movies when that's not exactly what the Scripture says. So what's happening here? I'm letting Hollywood tell me what the Scripture says instead of the Word of God. And there's problems picturing Jesus. You know, I don't want to be thinking of all the movie stars who picture Jesus. But you know what? I don't need to see a movie, and I don't need to see a movie to be moved. The point here is, when you read these things, what is the impact upon you? See, just reading it should have the same impact. You see... <clears throat> Turn with me to John 10, verses 37 and 38. Talking about all these works that Jesus was doing, he proved himself the Messiah according to Isaiah. Here's what Jesus said to those who were very critical of him. He said in verse John 10, 37 38, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you don't believe me, Believe the works that you may believe and understand that the Father is in me 
and I in the Father. I know you have difficulty, but I, I am healing the blind. I am uh, the lepers are being completely healed. The blind see, the dead are being raised. You may not believe me. Well, then believe the works. Am I out doing the works to the side? Believe those works. Blessed is he, Jesus said, who doesn't stumble over me. A few days ago, I received an email from a friend who, from time to time, uh, asked for my spiritual opinions on various matters. He was asking me what I thought about a friend that he had that he uh, years ago, who in the past, uh, they believed in Christ, they, uh, they did certain things together, and he found out recently that this friend had completely apostatized from the faith. His whole family's in turmoil because his wife is a Christian. They have two precious little girls, and this man, well, let me tell you what he's saying now. He says, how would you, John, respond to what this guy said? Let me just quote some of the, the arguments that this man was giving to my friend who wrote me. And asked, here's what his friend who once believed in Jesus, here's now what he was saying. Very simply put, I changed my mind because the things just made more sense if there is no God. In other words, I found myself having to make all kinds of excuses for the God I was serving. I.e., why did he do so many apparently horrible things in the Old Testament? And so it seems so different in the New Testament. Why does he allow suffering? Why does he answer some prayers and others, very important ones? Uh, why did he not choose a more efficient way to communicate with us than a not very well preserved, anonymously written by primitive superstitious people of a book? And that really was all about all that was to change in my beliefs. I was just no longer convinced by the evidences that Christianity is true. That doesn't mean that I know that no gods exist, but I am convinced that the Christian God does not. I'm an agnostic, don't know about whether a God exists. But until I see good evidence to support the existence of one, not really what that would look like, to be honest, Atheism is my opinion. When I realized that there was, may not actually be a God, this was a rational explanation that seemed to fit all the evidence that I could see around me, and it just made more sense. So my friend says, John, you got any? Uh, well, the way he replied to this friend was pretty good. But he says, do you have any other things reading that would you have to say? Well, so I'm not so much sure what more that you can say to them. I said, this, this passage that I'm going to send to you is best exemplifies this man. Turn with me to 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter 2. Beginning at verse 20 through verse 22. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Remember the guy says, I just, the evidence is not there for me to believe in this Jesus that you and I once believed. The problem is, men have a tendency to want to make God and to accept God on their own terms, right? And then, my friend said, the friend he was talking about, who sent him, who had apostatized, said, Now, 
I don't want to hear from you any of this turn or burn blank. I'll just leave it blank. He had a very descriptive word. I said to him, there is nothing more that you can really say to this man. When he says all the evidence is there, that he doesn't see the evidence, oh, I said, uh, quote to him again, Romans 1. God says all the evidence you need is out there in the world that God is who he is. But men suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and they exchange the glory of God for a four-footed creature. And they worship the creature than worship, rather than worshiping the Creator. The man has revealed himself to be a fool. And I said, you can argue with this man all you want, but I'm afraid he is the man of Second Peter 2. I'm afraid that's where he is. And he tells you, I don't want to hear any of this turn or burn blank from you. Well, guess what? You know what Paul did in Athens? When he came and they were discussing all the theological views, there are uh, the philosophical views, the Epicureans and the Stoics, and they would debate these issues. And Paul, who was quite capable to debate with them on this, comes talking about the resurrection of the dead, and they begin to laugh at him and say, who, who is this idle babbler? Who is this pseudo philosopher among us? And you know what Paul does? Does he, does he turn to try to give all these evidences to them? No, he says, you, you have this idol you have, that's inscribed to an unknown God. Now let me tell you who this unknown God is. He used it as a stepping uh, stone to preach the gospel. And he says, this Jesus, now remember, he's talking to people who do not believe that men rise from the dead. That's who he's talking to. They are refuting men don't rise from the dead. So what is his answer to them, or his, his, his uh, apologetic to them? Guess what? There is a man named Jesus, who is the Savior, who will be your judge, whom God has fixed the day by which he will judge all men. This man, whom, as if the stick of the end says, whom God raised from the dead. <laughs> This man whom God raised from the dead will be your judge on that day. And what was the response? Some began to mock him, said, you're crazy, Paul. Others said, you know, that sounds interesting. We're going to hear more about it. And some actually believe the scripture says. You know, the evidence is out there. What was Jesus doing uh, when he gave inquiry, when he responded to John the Baptist, he gave evidence, did he not, of who Jesus was? I mean, what he, that he was, that he was the Messiah. What was his works doing? Evidence. Well, the point here is, are you going to accept it, what you see? Are you going to accept it or not? Are you going to accept what God's word says or not? Jesus said in our text, he says, blessed are they... He says, is he who keeps from stumbling over me. I have done enough to prove who I am. And by the way, Jesus, I, I said to my friend, I said, you can tell your former friend. I said, you know, Jesus, his lordship, have we not learned this? Jesus will not capitulate to any man. Nobody has a right to make demands of the Lord of glory. I won't believe in you unless you can prove yourself to me. No, here's what, here's what Jesus says. No, you've you got to bow down. You need to fall at your feet and acknowledge me who I am. And if you don't do that, then you have stumbled over me. You have stumbled over me. You have failed to see the obvious. Now, in our text, look at verse 7, he, I mean, Matthew eleven seven. As these were going away, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes about John. Now, that, that's significant. 
Jesus waits till John's disciples leave in order to give this great tribute to John as if I don't want John to hear what I'm about to say about him. <clears throat> you know, in this regard, it's really not the best thing for preachers to hear the praises of people about their preaching. For here's what it can often do, create a sense of pride that we have to just repent of. Now, it's true that preachers want to know that they're effective, but it doesn't help for some say, that is the best sermon I have ever heard. That does not help the humility of the preacher. And so, as the scripture says, let another man praise you, not your own lips. And oftentimes it's, it's better that men don't hear all it is. So I say, all right, we'll take you up. We'll never say that to you. We'll probably do that. So Jesus waits for the disciples to leave, and he says, now what did you see when you went out to the wilderness to look at? He said, did you see a reed shaken by the wind? Now, what, what did he mean by that? What is that imagery all about? Well, by the, the Sea of Galilee, you had reeds and these little stalks. You've seen by uh, marshes. He said, did you, and the wind's blowing. Did you see a reed blowing in the wind back and forth like this, being swayed by the wind? So when you went out to hear John the Baptist, did, did you go out to see a reed being swayed by the opinions of men? Is that who you saw? In other words, did you, and when you went to see John the Baptist, did you see a crowd pleaser in John the Baptist? Did you see a preacher who doesn't want to rock the boat, as you may say? Did you see a preacher who didn't want to be careful that he didn't want to offend anybody? Is that what you saw with John? Did you see this, this guy that can be swayed by various opinions? By the way, we need to remind you, why was John in prison? Because the Jewish authorities knew exactly what Herod was doing. They understood the law. They understood he was living in an incestuous relationship. They didn't say anything. It was John the Baptist who said, You, it is unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. And then Herod's wife hates John with a passion because of that. And with, with the dance of the daughter, what do you want? Anything in the kingdom? Because the daughter comes and asks her mother, what should I ask for? Because the king said before all of his guests, I'll give you anything you want. So, mama, what, do I, what should I ask? The head of John the Baptist. I hated him that much. And, of course, the coward that Herod was. Do you, do you realize that Herod, the scripture says, used to like to listen to John the Baptist, it says. He liked to hear John the Baptist. But it got kind of personal when John says, it's not right for you to live with your brother's wife now. But it was his wife who hated him and then used the daughter in that circumstance to, um, for Herod then felt that he couldn't go back on his word. So Jesus said, did you see that kind of reed blowing the wind, some vacillator who caters to the opinions of men? Jesus says, when you went out to sea, what did you see? Did you see a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in palaces. Now, mind you, there's nothing wrong with nice, soft clothing. But is that what you saw with John the Baptist? No. Did you, did you see a man who um, 
was such that he would cater to the desires of the influential, the rich. And they would reward him with soft clothing. Is that what you saw with John? What was John? He wore camel hair. He ate bugs and honey. I was just adding a little bit of spice to the locusts. He lived in the wilderness. He didn't live in a palace. He's out in the desert. So what did you go out to see? You see this guy who gets rewarded by those in power? That's not who you saw. You know, in, in this regard, <clears throat> it grieves me to no end today that we have preachers in some notable places who have now capitulated on, for example, the same-sex marriage, who now are saying, well, I guess it's okay, sort of. Why would they say something like that? Why all of a sudden would you do that? What has motivated them? Public opinion. Of course. They don't want to be found out of step with others. It might damage their ministry. You know what Paul says? Well, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look at verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. Accumulating teachers according to their own desires. You know, God's view on homosexuality has never changed. The public opinion has changed, and consequently some in positions to preach have changed. Is that what you saw of John the Baptist? Rewarded by all this soft clothing? Is that what you saw? You know, and when Jesus' little ones come along preaching what the Bible says that condemns men's sins, then those who hate God will turn in great wrath upon them and begin to persecute them. You know, in the Old Testament is a great story of two kings, King Jehoshaphat of Judah and King Ahab of the northern kingdom. King Jehoshaphat was a godly king. There were no godly kings in the northern kingdom, and Ahab was a, was a wicked man. His wife Jezebel was even worse. But we're told that Ahab was going to be in a battle with Ramoth Gilead. And he convinced Jehoshaphat to come in an alliance with him to fight those in Ramoth Gilead. So Jehoshaphat comes and he says, Now, Ahab, if we're going to. Now, remember, they're kinsmen. They are kinsmen. Northern kingdom, the kingdom is split. So they have a common enemy. He says, now, if we're going to go to fight against these, I want to be sure. Are there some prophets here that can tell us is it going to go well? He says, yeah, I've got 400 prophets saying it's going to go well. He says, 400 of my prophets that say, yeah, it's going to work. He says, is there a prophet of God here? He says, well, yeah. And here's the classic line. He says, there is one, Micaiah. I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about them. You know what Jehoshaphat says? Go get him. I want to hear this prophet. And then the whole thing, the, the prophet says, uh, sure, it's going to go well. And they have said, no, wait a minute, you're lying to me. You're lying to me because you never say anything good. And it was true. He says, well, actually, Ahab, you're going to die. You're going to die in this battle. That's the truth. And you remember the story, how that all went down. 
They're in the valley. He convinces. I'll never understand how he Ahab convinced Jehoshaphat to wear his army. See, back in those days, if you kill the king, it's over. And he convinces Jehoshaphat to wear his army. What was Jehoshaphat thinking? And so when they, when they pressed in and realized this is not Ahab because they were about to get to Ahab, and they, oh, well, it's a lost cause, and they retreated. And it says that one soldier just had one arrow left. He said, oh, well. It says he saw it at random, and it hits Ahab, of all people, in the one place of his armor that was vulnerable. And he's mortally wounded. <laughs> Oh, I never like these kind of preachers. They always prophesy against me. Amos was one of those kinds of preachers. In the northern kingdom, they had the problems with the worship of Bethel, which was an illegitimate worship. And the high priest there says to Amos, who was very critical of him, says, Amos, why don't you go back and get out of town? We don't want to hear that kind of preaching uh, condemning us here. So Jesus said about John the Baptist, is that the kind of preacher that you went out to hear? A crowd pleaser? He says, did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, you saw a prophet. But Jesus says you saw more than a prophet. How was he more than a prophet? Well, look at verse 10. This is the one... About whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before you, before your face, who will prepare your way before you. John the Baptist was unique that not only was there a prophecy, it was a prophecy about the man. And he says he's no ordinary prophet. Yeah, he's a prophet, but he's not your ordinary prophet. He is sent to prepare the way for me. Now turn with me to to Isaiah 40 real quick. Look at Isaiah 40. Look at verses 1 through 5. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended that her iniquity has been removed that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins a voice is calling clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness make smooth in the desert a highway for our God let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley then the glory of the Lord will be revealed How did John prepare the way? How was he that messenger? Prepare the way in the wilderness. Let every mountain be reduced. Let every arrogant heart be brought down. Let every heart that's in the valley that's despondent, that's discouraged, that's burdened, let it be lifted up. John did that. How did he do that? He came preaching repentance for sins. Confess your sins and you will find forgiveness. Without repentance, there is no salvation. John's ministry prepared the way because unless you repent of your sins, you cannot be saved. And Jesus says, there is no, this, this John the Baptist was no ordinary prophet. He was the one sent to prepare my way. You remember the great story when, when um, the cousins... Mary and Elizabeth met. They're both pregnant. Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. Mary is pregnant with Jesus, the Son of God. When they met, do you remember what it says? That John the Baptist leaped, that the baby leaped for joy in the very presence of Jesus. This relationship, Jesus says, he was no ordinary prophet. So when you went out to hear this man, you heard somebody special. Now, and is this why? This is why Jesus said, why he didn't want to have John. Imagine, this is why he didn't want to have John hear about it. He says, I say to you, those born of women, 
There is not a risen greater than John the Baptist. To have the Son of God say that about you. As great as John is there, look what it says. And yet, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. You know what the answer to that really is? There's nothing inferior about that. Turn to, to Matthew 13, 16, and 17 and get the answer. Now, Jesus is talking about his parables. And he says, But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. John never saw one miracle of he who prepared the way for We are in so much more privileged state. John never saw the risen, he never saw the crucifixion and the risen Christ. John was not at Pentecost. And as Hebrews 11:12 tells us about all the great heroes of the Old Testament, it says that all of them died in faith without receiving the promises. In the sense, they saw the great work of Christ from a distance, but they never saw it themselves. But guess what? Those of the apostles, they saw it. All of us, we stand 2,000 years on the other side of the cross and the risen Christ. We have centuries that are before us of seeing the work of God throughout church history. We have seen all of these things. We are a privileged people. Therefore, there is nothing that minimizes John, but the least of us is greater than John because he never got to see that. But we do. And here's where it comes home. Jesus says, Blessed is the man who does not stumble over me. To whom much is given, much is expected. If you have seen these things, or you know about them, you know about them. Then you have no excuse. You have no excuse but to fall on your knees and worship Jesus. You have no excuse to remain in unbelief, not none whatsoever. Don't stumble over me. I'm the Messiah. Don't stumble over me. And so what we need, the great need today, are those resolute preachers like John who won't sway like a reed, who won't capitulate uh, their convictions to be rewarded by those in power, but who will simply preach the gospel of the kingdom no matter what. That's the need. Let us pray.